0: did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious
1: internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hello, it
2: is Friday, December 9th. My name is Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Hey, this is Fab Five Freddy. Hey, I'm Tebow Burnett.
3: I'm Andrea Bay. And you're listening to Q. And you are listening to Q with Tom Power. With
2: Tom Power. Director X is one of the greatest music video directors of all time. His visionary work with folks like Drake, Sean Paul, and Rihanna has helped transform their careers. And in the process, he's helped Toronto into the home of popular music that it is now. Director X will tell you how he did it and what he calls the invisible hand that's guided him through his projects and life-changing experiences experiences. That's coming up. Plus, tis the season to camp out on the couch with the cat, eating shortbread cookies, and watching holiday movies. But in the last few years, there's been an explosion of new Christmas movies. Our screen panel will tell you which ones hit like hot cocoa and which ones are a lump of coal. That's coming up on Q. Welcome to the show. It is Friday, which is always good news. Um, there's a decent chance that when you hear this next song, you might picture the video behind it too.
3: I know when there hotline blink, that can only mean one thing. I know when that hotline blinked, that can only mean one thing.
0: Ever since I left the city, yo you,
2: you, That's Drake and Hotline Bling, which was not just one of the biggest songs of the past decade, but the music video for it launched like a million memes. So if you have an image in your mind right now of Drake dancing in this box in pink and blue and yellow light, well, you can thank our next guest for that. Julian Christian Lutz is better known by his professional name, Director X, and over the past 25 years, he's been behind the camera for hundreds of music videos, including iconic clips for Nelly, Usher, and Rihanna, just to name a few. But most recently, he's branched out into feature films, including the 2018 remake of the movie Superfly. He came out to talk to us about that. But X is, he's way more than just a filmmaker. Over his career, he's helped elevate Canadian hip-hop into the global phenomenon it is now. He is always someone who's given back to the communities that have nurtured him. And that's a big reason why he finds himself among this year's inductees for Canada's Walk of Fame. So uh, a joy to have Director X in the studio to talk about uh, not just his work, but about his life um, and about the things he's working on now, which are beautiful and strange. And anyway, here's my conversation with Director X. Congratulations on Canada's Walk of Fame. Thank you very much. What does
3: that mean to you? Um, it's amazing. It's pretty wild. I mean, unexpected to say the least. Hip-hop and kind of institutional structured awards normally don't go together so well. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm just used to being overlooked by... These things to the point that you're never like, oh, of course, they're never going to recognize us. They're never going to recognize me. They're never.
2: In in particular
3: in Canada. And then on top of that, we're in Canada. So you're like, all right, whatever. You know what I mean? So it's uh, very surprised, very honored.
2: What was the impetus to start working in music videos at all? But were there videos you watched when you were a kid that got you interested in making them?
3: I think the the first time I saw a video that made me really react was um, Flavor In Your Ear Remix. Hyper Williams directed it who ended up becoming my mentor, um, that was a video I remember like, oh, wow, what what's this? It just it hit in a different way. It just, something about it, I don't know, began thinking. But when I went to Much Music, so what, that's not like I saw that video and said, I want to make those. When I went to Much Music and I was an intern at Much Music, that's when I said, oh, these cameras, these lights, this is interesting. Maybe I'll do this. It's what I tell kids a lot. Just do things you're interested in. Not everything, especially now in the age of TikTok and hustler culture, Right, You have people just like, if it doesn't meet my end goal, I'm not going to do it. Just do what you're interested in. So I drew and I was doing logos and I had like a little T-shirt thing I printed up and I was, you know, thought I was going to do comic books. So at that point I was thinking I was going to be a graphic designer and I was writing poetry because I hung out with my friends and they were rappers and I wrote a rhyme. And then, I, you know, what I mean, it just kind of flows into this thing. Then um, the poetry, I'm on the poetry scene in Toronto and we get invited to Rap City to do a, some poetry and while i'm there i say hey what's up with the internship cuz big c shout out craig Mannix, big c he was on the scene
2: architect we, incredibly important figure in the development of completely canadian music of hip
3: hop exactly. in canada exactly and before he worked at bmg he was a unit assistant at much music so everyone in the community knew that we thought he was rich too <laughs> wow he works at much music he must be rich now anyway <laughs> we're so dumb uh, But... Uh, um I knew he was there and I know he moved on to BMG. So I said, what's up with Big C's job? Just as a thing, just another thing to do. So it was no master plan. And then while I was there, I was like, oh, okay. You know what I mean, it definitely, when you look back at it, it definitely, you get into the idea that maybe there is an invisible hand guiding you around sometimes. I know there was no master plan because you just said that to me.
2: Was there... Um did you have any idea of what your career might look like when you were there? Like like, oh, maybe I'll be an intern and then I'll go into becoming an editor what I go into becoming a
3: No, because uh I left that and then I said, Okay, either I'm gonna go either I'm gonna do film television stuff or film you know, do be a director or do the film thing and then um just made the I reached out to started so decided, let's go for this uh Internship. Let me see if I make I get an internship with Hype Williams or internship with if in the game.
2: You knew you wanted to make music videos in some yeah. capacity. Yeah, and so you, you liked them. You liked being around them at Much Music.
3: I liked being around them. I like, you know I was an artist, right? Drawing, yeah. graphic design, then the camera and the lights. It seemed interesting. Loved hip hop. I loved the hip hop culture. Like all this stuff converged in a very great way with music videos.
2: I want to point out for people who either are younger or older that getting, working with Hype Williams at that era you did was like working with Steven Spielberg at that time. You know, one of the most influential music video directors, uh, creative visions of all time and will be forever. He's a pioneer. He's a hip hop pioneer. How do you, how does that happen that you, is it just you, you, uh, is there a form you fill out? like
3: persistence. Tell me the story. Um, Sent a package down, uh, of all my art. Why him? Why did you? He was the he was the only name we knew. He was Not only is he the one of the greats, he's the first person that people are like, oh, you're a, now there's a person in the, from the hip hop culture, of course, you knew producers, you knew MCs. Uh, there are some dancers that we knew. There are DJs that we knew. There are even managers that we knew, right? But this was the first director that we knew. And even had a hip hop name, Hype Williams.
2: I think if I ask you what you learned from Hype Williams, that could probably be a whole day here. Yeah. Give me. Can you give me an example of something that you didn't know that you learned from him? Um,
3: the big one with Hype was uh, I shot my first video. Horrible, horrible experience. What was it? Uh, Tracy Lee featuring Buster Rhymes, and it was awful. <laughs> and um, it wasn't my first video, but it was my first like budget and people who I'm like, oh, oh yeah working with people who've all worked as opposed to you and your friends. And it's very cool that your friends say, so, yeah, now you're with a guy who's shot and, you know, he's this guy works and the intimidated it all up. Um, sitting at home thinking, all right, maybe I'm not, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to be any good. And then hype's to be. You got to fight. That feeling that you suck is the enemy and you have to fight it. Feeling
2: to fight that feeling that you
3: suck is the enemy and you have to fight that. Yeah.
2: That's a beautiful lesson to learn. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk to me about Northern touch? Oh, wow. I want to give some, some context here, you know, because even as you're making these connections in the U.S., um, you play a really vital role in in shaping the Canadian rap industry. Talk to me about the significance of, of Northern Touch and what, what just some memories from it, um, and, and what that meant
3: in the moment. Northern Touch. I mean, I oh, I came from the hip hop community here. Part of the reason why I even got to the states was because I was part of the community here, right? My friends were rappers. We did the talent competitions. Um, you know, much I just I was. On the scene, so when I was looking to direct, I was actually coming back here. Like, hey, I'm working with Hype Williams. Y'all, what's up? And and surprisingly, you would think everyone was like, oh, our friend who's working with the biggest director. Of course, we went. They're like, nah. There's <laughs> there's another hot guy at the moment. Listen, looking back, it's not a great music video. I mean, we did it with pennies, but it looked like oh, for for Canadians, the record was good. You know what I mean? It wasn't – there's always this kind of substandard thing for a lot of – and for a lot of hip-hop. A lot of stuff just felt like, oh, this feels – you know, you do, this looks Canadian. This sounds Canadian. We, yeah. We'd have these terms, right? Yeah,
2: it looked very Canadian. I've heard that
3: a lot. Yeah. yeah. Right. But here's this video where the styling and the the song and the MCs and everything that's going on and what it looked like. Every, it looked like – it felt for us like, oh, okay, we can play. We We might be okay. We might be able to get on the field. Yeah. Right? So for the whole country, it felt like that.
2: Yeah. Did, i remember being in Newfoundland and that song coming on and i just remember feeling like i'm feeling that exact same way of like wow there's something happening there's something happening somewhere else in this country that's really exciting in yeah. fact i had a conversation with the other day with somebody and they said when you were growing up you know in newfoundland what did you what did you think about toronto and i said here's what i knew about toronto when i was a kid i knew about the hockey hall of fame mm-hmm. I knew about The Cool House because it was on Much Music. Oh, yeah. And I knew about Baby Blue Sound Crew. Wow. (laughs)
3: Wow. Because
2: I knew that like I had watched the Money Jane video so much and I loved the song so much that – that but I was like, oh, there's something really exciting happening in yeah. Canada mm. in, involving hip hop.
4: She she a lot.
2: It felt like when I was watching much music in the early two thousands, you were you were you had every video on it. Or like every second video was one of your videos for yeah. a long time, you know? So speaking of hyper Williams, I didn't know any real music video directors except for you. Right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when I was growing up, I was like – I knew there were music videos that were made. Maybe Spike Jones. Yeah. Spike Jones and you would have been the two directors that I knew about.
3: Yeah. You B- know? B- back when I was Little X.
2: Yeah. When you were Little X and you had – because you had the Get Busy video, right, for yep. for Sean Paul, yeah. which is the video – for people who haven't seen it. It's one I, – I watched it uh, last night to get ready for this. And It kind of takes place at this house party in, in the basement um, and then there's like a family – the normal family is living upstairs, yeah. and they're coming down to complain about the dancing going on in the basement. That was shot here?
3: That was shot in Ontario? A Tron- that's a Toronto experience. The basement party, while you're – you know, it's just the whole family has a party. So there's – they're playing music downstairs and upstairs. The mother, father, there's uncles, and there's all just – this whole thing is happening. And then people would bang on the furnace. The father would go downstairs, tell them stop banging on the furnace. They'd keep banging on the furnace. So you would just end the party. Like this is all – um, Toronto slice of life. Stop banging on the damn furnace. You hear me now? This is the last time. Let's get it on till it's Just me on.
4: shake that thing, miss. shake that
3: thing? And I remember what was interesting someone telling me, or somehow someone telling the story about them relating that to their sleepovers in the suburbs. Just a bunch of kids in the living room, but wiling out, and their dad coming down and yelling at them. Like, people found that, that connection, even though, but when again, when I did it, it was very much like, my, my thinking for Sean Paul was to surround him in the culture all the time. So, like, Give Me the Light was all this dancing, all these kids dancing. I mean, there's there's full big chunks of that video where Sean's not in it. It's just dancing, dancing, dancing. The culture, right? Um, then get busy. That the culture, the dancing, the basement, the that what it meant to be a West Indian in the North America, um, and bringing that, bringing. It, so it was always that was always the thing for Sean, pushing culture along with him. It wasn't it wasn't typical pop star. Look at this beautiful person singing. Yeah, You're right. But it is interesting to take
2: to take him from Jamaica, um, and, and bring him and like for him to have done that
3: in Toronto. Well, you know, this is another part of why you invest in the arts, right? Yeah. Um, that program that I did with Cardinal Fischel was a government funded program. From that program, I found directing. From directing, I went to America, and then I said to these Americans with their American money we can make this money work better in Toronto. Right. This will work better for us in Toronto. I got, this is better in Toronto. I brought a lot of jobs up here. So there's one part, we can make this money work better in Toronto. And then there's another one, I have all these West Indians. So I remember Sean Paul launched reggae back again. Yeah. It was very quiet. And then there's a reggae explosion. Yeah. That's directly connected to the city, Direct, yeah. directly connected to the culture of these kids, that North American West Indian mix and how they danced, how they spoke, how they, it just translated for the world. Um, in a really uh, specific kind of way, like everyone got it. I got a, I got a couple of dangerous questions for you, mm-hmm.
2: and I want to ask one of them right now. Sure. What, as someone who had come up in hip hop, had seen the various eras, you were probably, a, I think we're not too far away from one another, mm-hmm. age-wise, I don't think. So you would have seen the early days. You would have known about Dream Warriors and, and mm-hmm, of course, and, and Maestro and Mishimi. And then you would have seen, you know, Cardi and Mm -hmm. and Socrates. That's my generation. That's your generation. Obviously, I talked to Ron Nelson about this the other day. Mm. You know, whether there was any predicting that this genre that was relatively localized and was doing okay, that was doing well, that this genre from Toronto, like Toronto-style hip-hop and R&B, would become the biggest music in the entire world. Thanks to largely Drake and the weekend. Yeah. Any idea
3: why? Any idea what changed? Um, in my generation, it looked impossible, and things didn't look like it, you know. Again, it sounded Canadian. It looked Canadian. Just nothing looked like it was on the level. Then my generation actually was doing things on the level. We were actually, you know, I'm on the other side of the border working with these major artists. So the, the, that weekend generation and that Drake generation, they didn't. The doubt wasn't there. Of course, we can do this. Of course. Right. Right. So they knew his work. They weren't. And on top of it, my generation of hip hop was in this city, was the first one to say, No, we're from Toronto. Here's the CN Tower. This is how we talk. This is where we're from. Let me put on this blue. T-. The generation before mine, I try and keep it low, and they're at all. There's, I mean, there's, there's a, the, at the tail end, there's a couple guys from my generation before they really jumped on the train, always, they'd always uh, talk about being on the train in White Plains. Met her on a train in White Plains. I was on the train in White Pl- White the Bronx. Yeah. Right. The hell are you talking about the Bronx for? Right? Yeah. So, but that was always kind of this thing. They didn't want to really embrace Canada. And of course, the other side, let's say it's Canada. What, you, what you with? Toronto, mm-hmm. the other black people. Well, right? Our generation just embraced it. So, we don't care what you think. And this is how we talk. And we don't talk like you. And we're not trying to. So, why will go on. All right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, what? And now you. This is again part of the culture. So, the the Drake and the Weekend and and that generation came up where we're from Toronto. It can happen. This is how we talk. What's up, Wagwan? Right. And so it's this mentality walking into it. I feel was very different. Let's not forget Tory Lanes. And I mean, I go. There was a time when Mister Morgan, big up Mister Morgan, for those who know. He and I were literally the only guys from Toronto in the States. <laughs> we'd have dinner at this little Chinese restaurant, Szechuan Kitchen. I miss you. Um, <laughs> 20 bucks, we'd go home with uh, leftovers. It was great. Oh, yeah. uh, Peking chicken, diced chicken. And pe- oh, my God. The best. But it was just us. Now you go out, there's a million you know, producers. And, and it's all, I mean, Akon did an interview. He says, yo, Toronto's running the game. Yeah. Maybe not culturally, but on a business side. Yeah. Toronto's enough for him to say the statement. What does that feel like? Just like being on the Walk of Fame, never in a million years, never in a million years did I think Toronto would have be a powerhouse, be a force in the worldwide music industry legitimately we got our producers we have our writers we have our singers we have there's you know jesse reyes not everyone has to be a you know drake weekend level like that's mind-blowing to have two artists of that level but have all these other artists occupying daniel caesar yeah.
2: uh, jesse reyes I all mean, oh, the Division. like yeah. there's all these
3: artists uh, yeah. they're just in the game this is what's going on mm-hmm. unbelievable never never did i think this would happen i hope you feel some pride yeah yeah i feel like uh you know the grandfather of the uncle or the, you know
2: Can we talk about Hotline Blame?
3: Of course Yeah You used to call me on my cell phone
2: Late night when you need my love Call me on my cell phone Late night when you need my love And I know when that Hotline
1: Blame
3: That can only mean one thing
2: so I got I got a, a I, I had 1985 on the other day, mm. and he talked to me about how he had like some idea that that song was going to blow up, mm. like he when he, when he heard it for the first time because he, he he, I mean he produced it right. Yeah. He said even when we performed it live, we knew it was going to be really big. But he said when the video came
3: out, everything kind of changed. What's your What's your memory of that? Same thing. I mean, we did it. Um, another example of what a video can do for a record, but the. We did, I thought, oh, I think the culture is going to love this. I, I also, you know, as far as hip hop is concerned, far as this culture that we're in, I think we're making something that the culture is really going to, I think we're going to stir it up. And then it just, you know, just went crazy. The memes, the, you know, it was on the news. There was on CNN, did a story about Hotline Bling. Unreal. Unreal. What was that experience? Like, obviously it was flattering, but like, is that is that weird for you that like... Not weird, no. It's, again, you're you're watching it from the outside, almost like, oh, geez, geez, another one. But, You know, it's just crazy. But it was the beginning of that kind of internet take something and just go crazy with it, add things to it. There's you know a lightsaber version of Hotline Bling. There's one where like he's playing. Go- there's all the, the tennis one is my favorite yeah, one. Yeah, the tennis the one, one was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it's really really fun. And the, the one that all to this day, the one where he's uh, you got your two boxes and there's like, no, I don't want it, and then I want it. The kind of whatever people will add to. He's in the red jacket with the yellow background. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so you got this kind of evergreen meme from Hotline Bling now.
2: Meme format. Yeah. It, it doesn't offend you at all. You don't watch it and go like, not, you know, I'm precious about my art. I don't want people it's to... It's
3: hip-hop, man. How, you know I mean? Huh? How dare they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's hip-hop, bro. You got to be loose.
2: That, that feels like a good thing to me. Of course.
3: Yeah, this is how people are. That's how people are. This, this... uh That's one of the beautiful things about the technology. You get a real vibe for people and how they can see through things. See something and open up the comments and say, do people see through this like I see through this? Most times people see exactly what's going on.
2: They can tell. I think about this with this this thing I do all the time. They can tell immediately if something doesn't feel right or something feels inauthentic or something doesn't feel
3: good-hearted they know immediately. And I, I kind of like that because it keeps me in check too, you know? you're not fooling anybody. No. Um, I wish I knew that as a teenager. <laughs> you know what I'm you, you think you're fooling people, but you're not fooling anybody, you know what I mean? Yeah. Everybody can see exactly who you are and what you're trying to do and everyone sees it.
2: I want to ask you about um, the meditation, which we talked a little bit before we got going. Um. But I, I'm nervous about asking you about what led to it. I mean, it's nothing to be nervous about. Okay.
3: Well, because I wanted to
2: ask you about the shooting. I wanted to ask you about the shooting.
3: Yeah. Well, the shooting was – do, do you feel comfortable telling me what happened? Yeah. I don't – all I know. So I'm – it's New Year's. It's my party, right? And um, I'm on the dance floor and then you hear a loud – I hear feel a little something in my side. And I turn around, there's someone on the floor. And I've been in the, around this enough. Okay, well, that was a gunshot, and that person's been shot. Gunshots are louder than um, your brand. Will go, oh, is that a bottle? But you know bottles don't pop. You've never heard a bottle pop in a club with music playing and heard a bottle pop. Right? They're not that loud. But you're trying to, right? It's A, a gunshot is loud. It's an explosion. It's a little explosion. Yeah. So, all right, that was a gunshot, and he's been shot. I feel something, but I'm not really registering it. And then, you know, through the night, I figure it out. Um, A cop actually told me. I said, hey, do you have a first aid kit? I was grazed. And they were like, no, you've been shot. And they start poking the bullet. The bullet was in my side. You didn't
2: feel anything? You didn't feel? Again,
3: it felt like someone hit me. Bullet had gone through two people.
2: Bullet had gone through two people and ended up. So
3: some guy shot someone on a dance floor, a packed dance floor at a New Year's party. Shot the guy once. Thank God it was just once. Shot the guy once. Went through him, went through the guy behind him, and then hit me in the back. And just a little bit this way or a little bit that way, that could have hit my spine. It would be a whole other story. Praise the Lord. Right? Um, that it was, a, you know, I walked away from it. But that that was not what got me meditating. It's That was what set up the TED Talk message to the man who shot me. Right? Everything changes just through meditation, so the TED talk lays this all out, and after I did the TED Talk, I didn't intend to start an organization people everyone's well, how can I help how can I help? how can I help how can I help and that's when my uh, friend Donnell uh, Adams he and I did a we started operation prefrontal cortex.
2: What strikes me about this is that when you get shot some, some people would wallow in that and rightfully so. They would – or they would just kind of try and move on with their lives. I think it's interesting. I think it's admirable and I think it's interesting that you get shot and you go, how can I fix the environment that led to this happening?
3: Yeah. Look, right away, when I first got shot, I did interviews. I blamed the music. This music talking about violence and guns. This must be getting in people's heads. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I thought this must be the cause. Well, not so much the cause, but you take a poor neighborhood where violence is already happening. You yeah. add the music. This must be, you know, to a degree. Yeah, there's something about if you're kind of programming yourself that way. But then again, learning about the brain, trauma, yeah, violence, neglect, stress, yeah, what this 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 all changes the brain.
2: But that takes a tremendous amount of compassion to have gone through something that physically and emotionally hurt you. And to try and be like, how can I fix the the can I how can I fix the environment so that this doesn't happen?
3: I get it. I mean, sure. <laughs> you know, what I mean, uh, it's just it's again the invisible hand is moving things around. I, it wasn't some thing, but at, when it was unfolding, and it's an issue in my community, right? The violence is serious. So, like, I mean, not in my community. This city, there is no safe place. You know, there are bystanders getting shot on Blue Jays Way. In front of the Bisha Hotel, you saw that video. I sure a little, did see that. Yeah. Little boy yeah. barely missed a, a bullet hitting him. I did see that. Yeah. Right. I mean, for everybody needs to look around, and on a bigger level, these are our kids. We we really have to move past. Well, that's poor kids. You know, mm-hmm. they're all our kids. Mm-hmm. They're all our kids.
2: I, I I think it's beautiful that you you've. You've tried to take something that has, you know, you've tried to, to try to help find a solution that is a non-conventional one, and I can tell you, you and I were talking about this before we turned the microphones on. Meditation has completely transformed my life. It has made my career better. It has made my my personal lives better. It has made all of my relationships better. It has made going through the world easier. Yep. It has made me calmer. It has made me, when I am emotional, more more focused in my emotions. Um, it has changed everything for the better. And I have spent time going, I wish everyone could just do this.
3: It is. I'll say these things. Now we have this platform. Meditation needs to be in our school system, top to bottom, all the way through. It needs to be, they need this mental exercise. It needs to happen. Again, not just because you, not just for the kids that are coming from uh, traumatic homes or in traumatic environments. But even for the kid that comes from a lot, it, does ama- it doesn't just feel, fix the trauma and then you're done. No, then it, it goes in. Once you get past uh, repair, you get into the, all these amazing benefits. We change a generation. And we know this. And I really, I mean this when I say it's this. It's important to say. For, for us to know what meditation does in a school environment and for us not to implement it is neglect. It's negligence. It's incompetence. All, so if, whoever's listening that's in the education system. You're neglecting your duty. You're incompetent right now. So let me add some po- <laughs> But you can change it. You can save this thing. You can walk in the world, have the fight, do the battle, and watch this thing change. Do the experiment. There's, there's, only be- there's only positive benefits that come from this. And then until we're at that point, then if you can do it with your kids, you can do it yourself, this is what we need. But if we get in the schools, we change a generation. We, we swing everything around. We need this. We, our cops need it. All our first responders need it, but especially police. Stress does what abuse and neglect do. Stress shrinks your prefrontal cortex, enlarges your your amygdala. It hardwires in your fight or flight response. It hardwires it in. So when you're like, why are these cops acting this way? Yeah, well, see how calm you'd be, you know, after you've seen... The car crash, where the head rolls off, all these things—it it does things to your brain. It makes you react a certain co- kind of way. Meditation would change. This should be throughout the system. Well, I'm
2: I'm so um, I'm so excited that that's what you're that's what you're doing, and it's, it's, it's exciting for me. I
3: and uh, I do want to point. Uh, we got a we we had a film in TIFF, Quiet Minds, Silent Streets, that we made with Headspace and premiered at TIFF this year. And um, when that gets little. If you have a chance, you see Quiet Minds, Silent Streets, Operation Prefrontal Cortex, and Headspace, watch it. It's about a community in Malton, a bunch of kids in Malton. Their teacher says, after one of the largest mass shootings, over 140 rounds shot, and this kid, teenage kid, just waiting for someone to pick him up, happened to be around, stray bullet killed him, devastates the community, hurts all these kids, they're they're all crushed. Teacher says, let's try meditation. And they use the, the TED Talk to show these kids, hey, this could work for you. They adopt it, and it changes their lives. Uh, 15 minutes, uh, like I said, quiet minds, solid streets. When it Look out for it if you get a chance to see it, especially when it gets, hits the world.
2: Well, well, as soon as we can, we'll, we'll post a link about it. Could you talk a little bit about Robin Hood?
3: Yes. I'd love to talk about Robin Hood. Talk
2: to Hood. me a little bit about, uh, tell me a little about this show, this upcoming show.
3: Yes. I'm, I've created, produced, and I'm directing, not every episode, um, a television show for global TV, uh, Robin Hood. And it's a modern retelling of Robin Hood. Robin with a Y. Robin with a Y because it's a girl because mm-hmm. you get it. Mm-hmm. I, y, I get it. See? <laughs> yeah, no, I got it. See? I, get, see? I see? I know. Yeah, that's meditation. Yeah, like, yeah. Know. That's and, and, and they live at the corner of Sherwood and Forest. Ah. ah! See? Yeah, see? Yeah, see? Yeah, no flies. I there you go. So, um, yeah, it's uh, John Prince wants to buy the Sherwood Towers and build some monstrosity. And they're fighting back and, you know— they're rappers, they make the music. It's New Nottingham and we shot it here. We uh shot our studio was in Pickering, the exteriors are in Hamilton. And uh yeah, it's just exciting um to create this show and it's filled with music, the fashion, the cast is gorgeous. I constantly look at the cast, like, God damn, everyone's beautiful. What the you know, what TV's supposed to be, right? Um Yeah, we're it's gonna be coming around in twenty twenty three sometime.
2: I'm looking forward to talking more about it. Do you want to do a quick lightning round before we go? Sure. Most expensive video you ever made? Um, thong song remix. Thong song remix? Yes. Um, artists you were most nervous about working with? Nobody
3: really. Really? No. You never had a moment of like, oh my God, I'm going to get to work with this person. I'm never going to. No, not nervous. I've worked with Shakira a few months ago. That was fun. That was, like, I should care about shit. Yeah. But like, I don't know. I've never been, I think it was part of that Toronto upbringing. We're very proud of our unstar struckness. Most grueling video shoot you were a part of? Mm, probably Usher. You got it bad.
2: What was hard about that?
3: It's just, there's a lot working hard. Usher pulled, like he dislocated his shoulder. I burnt my hand on a light. I twisted my ankle. It was just a lot of injuries involved in making that one for some reason. Um, Music video that you're most proud of. Hmm. I won't say it's not a music video. It's actually a short film. Yeah. Um, If you go to Fela TV under Uh Fela.TV, under my name, you can see it. It's a short film called Seven Mothers. It's for a fashion brand called Pierre Moss. And it's the the founder, um, Jean, or Kirby, he was, his mother died at a young age and he was raised by these seven women. So we tell his story. I show it, and it's not unusual for someone to start crying.
2: That's what you're most proud of. Yeah. Music video that you wish you could take a second crack at.
3: Mm. Does that exist? Yeah. Yeah. Usher. Um, uh, yeah. Oh yeah! Really? Beep, beep. Beep, beep, beep. I would just would have done all lasers. I would never. I would just remove all the club stuff. I, I I associate it with the club stuff. I know, but of them, right? I would have done all lasers. <laughs>
2: That's not the answer I was expecting.
3: No. I didn't have a video in mind, but I didn't expect that one. Big song, by But, it, right? you know, I do, I do kind of redo it with Zayn, mm-hmm. but you got to find the director's cut. Zane, like I could, director's cut. That's a full laser thing. Director's cut. It's what you would have done for Yeah. Yeah, the director's cut. The, okay, okay. I, I repeat. I got gotcha.
2: you. <laughs> artist that you're dying to work with, but you haven't worked with yet?
3: The Weeknd. I mean, like, one of his videos. I, did, I worked with him and Rosalia, but I'd love to do one of his things.
2: Up-and-coming artist you think everyone needs to look out
3: for? Well okay, how about this? I'll give you a genre ballet yeah. funk Brazilian hip hop I have seen some of this it's, ba- yeah. yes, ballet funk, I think that's uh the music, the folk just it's very different. in fact, the music so in Robin Hood, because you have the band of Merry Men and they make music, this time they they're rappers. I went and got ballet funk beats, and it's we're using their inflections, and it's it's based in ballet funk, so it's just this very cool, fresh new sound finally. Favorite Hotline Bling meme. Favorite Hotline the this, this star because I'm a nerd. The Star Wars one. Yeah, I forget. I uh, the first time you and I talked, you told me what a nerd you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a super nerd. So yeah, the, the lightsaber one's hilarious. See and Drake hold the lightsaber and <laughs> –
2: at the same time. I get it. Um, well, I mean, to talk about the invisible hand that sort of guided you along the way, what I what I am hearing is that you have also been such a great hand in making this country better, um, making this country more interesting, making Toronto better, and making Toronto more interesting. And this is such a well-deserved honor, man. And thanks for coming in and talking
3: to me about I it. I mean, thanks for having me and appreciate all those kind words.
2: My conversation with Julian Christian Lutz or Director X. As I mentioned, Director X was just inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame. Celebrating Greatness, Canada's Walk of Fame 2022 is a TV special that airs Saturday, December 17th at 7 Eastern on CTV. And look out for Director X's new series, Robin Hood. That's with a Y, Robin Some kids' books are more than just bedtime stories. They're rites of passage. Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret by Judy Blume is definitely one of those books. It tells the story of an 11-year-old girl and her struggles to understand puberty, faith, and family. Judy Blume has written dozens of books for kids and adults over her long career. And even though it wasn't her first book, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret was her breakthrough – And it still has the power to connect with readers today. So when uh, the book turned 50, we got on the phone with Judy Bloom herself to celebrate. Judy Bloom, welcome to Q. Oh,
4: thank you so much.
2: It's lovely to talk to you. Uh, Can I start by asking you to read the opening of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret?
4: Well, that would be fun. I probably haven't done that in about 50 years. (laughs) Let's see. All right. Chapter one. Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. We're moving today. I'm so scared, God. I've never lived anywhere but here. Suppose I hate my new school. Suppose everybody there hates me. Please help me, God. Don't let New Jersey be too horrible. We moved on the Tuesday before Labor Day. I knew what the weather was like the second I got up. I knew because I caught my mother sniffing under her arms. She always does that when it's hot and humid to make sure her deodorant's working. I don't use deodorant yet. I don't think people start to smell bad until they're at least 12. So I've still got a few months to go.
2: Judy Bloom reading the beginning of Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. I, you said you haven't read it out loud in about 50 years, so I have to ask, how did you feel reading it just then?
4: Uh, kind of good. I liked it.
2: <laughs> Tell me a little bit about who you were when you were Margaret's age.
4: I was a lot like Margaret. I mean, you know, this is this is my first. It, it, it's my third published book, but the first real book—the book that where I just let go, and you know, I just didn't know what I was doing. I just did it, and and this is what came out. And it's very much um, the kind of kid I was, although my family was very different from Margaret's family, and it's also. Um, some of it strikes me as funny when I read it, because it's such a combination of who I was at 12 and, and my friends, who we all were, and then the fact that I had, when I wrote it, um, I had my own kids.
2: When you were Margaret's age, did you ever read a book where a girl talked about getting her period or going through puberty?
4: No, but I wanted to. I <laughs> would have been very happy with that. Um, I was writing the book. I didn't really think about that. I just knew I wanted to be real. I wanted to be real. I wanted to be honest. But really, it's it's, it's about telling a good story. And, yeah, these things are on her mind. I was totally obsessed for one year in my life with breast development and wanting to get my period. I was, I was the small, um, I was small and not developed and and everything came later to me. And so this just was what I wanted desperately. And so, so does Margaret.
2: It sounds like it was also something that you want, you wished you could have read about.
4: Oh, yeah. Sounds
2: like you were writing something for your younger self too.
4: Well, yes. When you said to me, had I ever read a book about no, but I, you know, again, I would have loved to have read about that. I, I would have been really good um, to know that I wasn't the only one.
2: But you were. I mean, you were one of the first people to, I mean, in this case, you were one of the first people to write books for kids where this stuff was dealt with honestly and was dealt with openly. And some people didn't like that. How did you know at the time you were doing the right thing?
4: Well, I again, I was you know, I was telling my truth. Maybe not everyone's truth, but my truth. I was just trying to write. But I didn't know anything. That's the thing that um, you have to understand. I didn't know anything about writing a book. I was a reader. I was always a reader. And so, you know, the first two books, again, were like learning experiences. Like, okay, now I think I can do this, but now I'm going to just forget all the rules and I'm just going to write what I know to be true. I had a very, very good memory for the details. Of, you know, I wasn't so far removed from it then. I don't know how old I was. I think I was, um, I don't know, 30 when the book was published. Maybe I was 30 when I wrote it. I don't remember. But it's what I knew. its It's, it's the only thing that was going to come out of me when I started writing was was about growing up, being young. That was still right there. You know, it was just right under my skin.
2: Did you have a feeling that it was going to get some pushback, that, that some people weren't going to be happy that you were writing a book like this?
4: No, because I didn't, I didn't even know anything about, you know, audiences. Now, maybe maybe my publisher knew, maybe my editor knew, but um he was always incredibly supportive um, to me this you know this is the thing there was nothing wrong with thinking about getting your period and wanting wanting your breast to grow. There was nothing wrong with that it wasn't controversial in my mind. it was just true. Um, So, you know, people who think, I mean, as I, you know, wrote more and more books, of course, I did learn that there were people around who thought puberty was a dirty word, Um, but it wasn't in my house, and um, not that I discussed it with my parents, oh no, I didn't, I mean, I did all those things that Margaret did, I hid in the closet and put cotton balls inside my bra and um if my mother noticed she never said anything she was she was so shy and quiet and she could never talk about anything like that but my father is the one who you know wanted he wanted to be the parent that I could come to with questions and um and I did when I was younger I did he's the one who told me about periods because I badgered him until he did because I had had a cousin who said, um, oh, I don't feel that well today. We went there to visit the family, and she was maybe 13 or 14, Mm -hmm. and it was like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And she said, oh, you'll find out when you're 13. And all the way home in the car, it was a long car ride, I was at my father. What will I find out? What will I find out when I'm 13? And finally, when we got home, I guess, you know, he and my mother decided that he should tell me. He was a dentist, so, you know, that was very close in those days to being a doctor. So so he was the one, um, and he felt comfortable enough to talk to me about um, puberty, about sexuality later on.
2: It's good that you mentioned that, and it's good that you mentioned that, you know, when you came out, you had no idea that people would react reacted the way they did, or that people would be uncomfortable with a, a book where someone was talking about their period. You know, when, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret was published back in 1970. You donated three copies to your kids' school. Can can you tell me what happened to those books? Yeah,
4: that's true. I was very excited, you know, about my book. And so um, both of my kids went to the local elementary school, and I did donate three copies, signed copies, to the school library. And the male principal, um, not a good guy, uh, for many, many reasons, but he um, removed them from the library, and he said, uh, you know, um, girls in sixth grade are too young to read about this. We, we can't have these books in our library. Never mind, you know, how many girls in in, in fifth and sixth grade already had their periods um, in those days, but no, the books weren't able to be on the shelf." Of the school
2: library. When that happens, when people are, have been trying to ban your books or keep them out of libraries, what do you think it is that they're afraid of?
4: Um, they're afraid that their kids will ask them questions, I think. They're afraid of subjects that they don't want to discuss. I used to have this great line, maybe I can conjure it up. Um, you know, they think if their kids don't read about it, it's never going to happen to them. Mm. And, and then they'll never have to discuss it. So uh, I think that's what it was. And it, it was not all parents by any means, you know, it, uh, or all librarians or teachers.
2: Um, do, do you have a bit of a thick skin about it? Or, you know, or does it still kind of hurt when people misunderstand what you're trying to do or try to try to limit what you're trying to do or try to censor what you're trying to do?
4: My skin is much thicker now than it was 50 years ago. <laughs> Actually, I think when you age, your skin gets thinner. But I know what we're talking about, <laughs> yeah, so <that's> right. <laughs> I will say that in 50 years, my skin has gotten thicker.
2: I bet, uh, yeah. I, so, so back then, 50 years ago, it was it was a bit tougher.
4: It sounds like such a crazy number. I mean, 50 years ago. I mean, I think of that young woman writing this book who, who was me. Um, the idea that 50 years from then I would be talking about this book, I mean, I would have been, you could have knocked me over. What's funny, I think, is I remember when I was creating Margaret's grandmother, who's who's a very important character in the book, um, and I made her age 60. um, And Margaret says, uh, you know, my grandma's very old. She's, Sixty, but you know she's really fun, and she's this and she's that. And when I think about that, I mean, my kids are getting close to that age now. <laughs> Such a, it's an odd, age is an odd thing.
2: My, my, if you're just tuning in, my guest is Judy Bloom. We're talking about the fiftieth five zero anniversary of "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret." And back in 1970, when it did come out, what did kids tell you about the book? When did you realize it was having a connection with with them?
4: Well. Yeah, that was really something. Um, They started to write to me, and um, they wrote to me to say, you know, I thought I was the only one in this book. Uh, Let me know that I wasn't. It was like talking to a friend. or uh, I mean, they said these incredible things, and it was like, oh, oh, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe i can really do this thing maybe i can really write um because i didn't know until then i you know again i really didn't and that was like that was that was so reinforcing and, and supportive and um that's what every writer needs to keep going
2: Author Judy Blume, I spoke with her a while back when Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, celebrated its 50th anniversary. Recently, Netflix announced it will adapt another one of her classic young adult novels forever into a TV series. Not long ago, you might have rung in the holidays by going through the old DVD collection and pulling out a surefire classic like great Christmas movies like It's a Wonderful Life or A Christmas Story or Die Hard or Elf. But in the streaming age, Christmas movie lovers have a paralyzing number of options. According to Entertainment Weekly, no fewer than 170 new holiday films are premiering this season across all platforms. 170 new holiday films. Right on. Pretty much all of them feature some familiar faces from the 90s as a romantic lead, so we wanted to get together a panel of movie experts to talk about what is driving this explosion of Christmas spirit. Emile Niazzi is here. She's a writer and showrunner at CBC's Pop Chat podcast, which just released its final episode. Good friend of the show. Hi, Emile. How are you? Hi, Tom. Um, We also have Super Channel host, frequent Q guest, Terry Hart, Uh, back with us. Hi, Terry. Hi, Tom. And you guys said that in the exact same way. It freaked me out. <laughs> yeah, and bit. playing the role of the Christmas movie Grinch, we have film critic Rad Simon Play.
0: Bah humbug. That's humbug. better. Thank you for not saying. Hi, Tom. Um,
2: Emil, I want to start with you. Tell me, I think there's a story here about how you got into the whole Christmas movie thing.
5: Yeah, I mean it's an unlikely story for sure because I I grew up Muslim and we did not celebrate Christmas. In fact, I hated Christmas movies because I could not relate to a single facet of them. Um found them quite boring actually. And then I had children and suddenly I felt like I wanted to have markers of seasons. And short of the whole Jesus thing, which I don't do, movies seem like a good entree, Uh, you know, so it started with stuff that I was familiar with. And then it was really in the pandemic. I had uh, an, a very new baby, I was getting up at, at five in the morning with her. And the only thing on were, were Hallmark Christmas movies at the time. And I just... Allowed myself to bathe in their simplicity and their formulas. And it was so comforting and so soothing at a time when I think we all really needed some sort of, um, you know, tether to the normal world. And I just became completely hooked. And now, you know that i call them my stories and i wait very <laughs> patiently for you know halloween to be over so that the hallmark christmas season can begin
2: i mean it's it, that's a thing cuz I mean, like i, I uh, not not to butter your bread too much here but like you are you are someone whose uh, taste i i really trust you know and i would i would look to you on uh, online or on the show for you know your your takes on uh, hbo dramas or you know critically acclaimed films terry terry <laughs> that goes for you too there's something about, you know, people who don't typically engage in like sort of the Hallmark Christmas movie thing getting into it these days. Terry, Like, what's the appeal of these movies for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's atypical for me, too. And and I think at this time of year specifically, for me, it's, it's the counter-programming of it all because we're immersed in awards season and the contenders and the awards hopefuls. And they all tend to be more serious dramas that leave you with something to think and talk about. But I do also love just the pure escape of this Christmas movie genre and what they offer up and just like watching them and being – okay, well, that happened. Let's go to bed. And there's nothing in my head afterwards. <laughs> I don't have to have a deep, deep conversation with my husband about the state of the world. I can just, you know, turn off and, and go to bed. And there's something about that that has appealed to me year after year.
2: All you got to think about is why Lauren Graham picked that one guy over the other guy. That's all you got to think about. Um, Rad, singing as how we're getting you in between uh, leaving lumps of coal in children's stocking, can you at least give us some like industry perspective here like why are we seeing so many i think i said in the intro like 170 new christmas movies this year why why so many
0: well i mean cuz well first of all bear in mind that this business model is nothing new right like the idea of like these kind of hallmarky christmas movies like they are they essentially come from the holiday rom com staple, which goes as far back as the rom coms in general, right? Like 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 the shop around the corner, the movie that was remade into You Got Mail is a cornerstone holiday rom com. And you know, I'm a fan of a lot of these old, like the 1940s ones, like Preston Sturge's like, you know, Remember the Night and Miracle of Morgan's uh, Creek. So here, so we, these go. Are here new. we go. Yeah, I I get get know, no, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> it's a good one. Those are good. But the but the good, but you see, the thing is like all we're doing is all we're seeing is like an amplification of that business model, right? And, and the reason we're seeing this amplification, it's now you have so many streaming platforms, right? There are so many streaming platforms that are on the market. And each of these streaming platforms, I mean, year round, they're creating a glut of content, and then when you get to the holiday season, like Emil said, you wait for Halloween to be over, so the shelves are stocked with Christmas decor. Same thing; these streaming shelves, these streaming platforms, they're all stocking their shelves with holiday merchandise, just like any department store would. And so that's why we're seeing so many.
2: I mean, I, sounding like a Christmas movie hipster to me, a little bit rad here, you know? <laughs> a little bit like you know, oh, do you like 1975? Oh, I like Devo and New Order <laughs> actually. You know, when they first um, well, <laughs> let's 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 give to be fair to Rad here, let's give. Uh, folks listening to this a sense of what we're talking about here. Take a listen.
5: And uh, what's the bear population like here? Just asking for a friend? (laughs) It's you. Do you always cut down your own tree?
0: No, but I started so late this year, I figure I better finish strong.
5: Oh, That one. Over there.
3: (gasps) You okay? Yeah. I'm fine okay anyone <laughs>
2: that sounded sound so awful oh my god <laughs>
1: I, I think that was the meet cute
2: that was the, well, hold on what does that mean
1: when the two love interests first meet the meet cute it's what's it's called in the rom-com common movie speak did uh, someone
0: trip into the other person's arms Maybe yeah, I heard a bit or, or walk into each other with a, a cake? No. oh okay yeah.
2: oh my god so hold on Emil. do you <laughs> Emil, did you recognize what that was or did you do you know what do you know what the movie was
5: I don't know what the movie is, but I recognize what that was. I've seen a lot of those movies.
2: So let me say it's a called A Kismet Christmas. Emil, can you give us the broad strokes of sort of how every single one of these movies goes?
5: Yes. And you can tell me if I'm right about this movie because I haven't seen it. But usually a uh, small town girl uh, leaves for the big city and, you know, becomes a, a writer or a journalist or, um, you know, some type of marketing person ignores Christmas, ignores her family For some reason, she's called back to her hometown where she runs into her high school sweetheart or, you know, an unrequited crush that never quite made it. And then they fall in love while she tries to save Christmas. And Mm. that's just a classic Hallmark holiday film.
2: Terry, does that sound right to you as a connoisseur? Does that sound right to you?
5: I would add it
1: could be her best friend's brother. And oftentimes (laughs) it's called back to small town because it's a great aunt or uncle or great grandparent that has died. Um, And it has to be the great. It has to be one removed because it can't be too sad. And hopefully that great relative has left a letter with a hint at how our lead actress can live a more fulfilled life.
2: Wait, a letter? So the so the so the great aunt dies. So it's no one too serious. It's not like your mom or something like that. Your great no, aunt no, dies, no, no. and she uh-huh. leaves you a letter about how to how to live your life. This is sort of how it goes.
1: Yeah, live a more fulfilled life. But She's it has to be related to, to Christmas. It
2: has to be yes. related to Christmas, Emile?
5: Yes, yes, it has to be like um, cr- only Christmas can teach you the true meaning of life and love. And therefore, oh. if, if you don't find my. Um, you know classic vintage christmas tree topper in time then you'll never know what it means to be a fulfilled human being <laughs> and <then> she finds <laughs> a christmas tree topper and then she kisses uh her love interest at the very end of the movie it's very important that they don't kiss until the very last scene
1: and it's very important that that kiss is a closed mouth kiss
2: so no open mouth no tongue in the no, hallmark christmas no, movie no 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 would, would you mouth. like to know the actual synopsis of a kismet christmas the clip we just yes, listened
5: to yes all
2: right <laughs> Sarah is a children's book author who returns to her hometown where she reconnects with her family and Travis, her teenage crush. She, sh- she soon discovers that a long-held family legend might actually be true. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of it, right? This is kind of what you – you're, you're not wrong about this. Um, all right, Rad, let's bring you in here on your, on your fixed-wheel bicycle. <laughs> let's, let's get you in here your, on your penny-farthing bike um, with the big wheel. What's your idea of quality holiday entertainment, if not these dumb movies?
0: Uh well, first of all, can I just thank emil and Terry Hart for making me feel like I was in a writer's room at Hallmark just now? And I am like, <laughs> oh my god. And I'm like, so look, I'm gonna go home traumatized after that. But you know, did so I not
5: exactly uh-huh. nail what the film is? Yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Incredible. Um but yeah, look, like I mean, obviously I'm not watching that right like i think like you could uh, we could like uh, enjoy holiday movies without compromising taste and you know like my favorite holiday movie is i mean you know brace yourself it's eyes wide shut directed by I think think we're out of time
2: I think quirks and quarks has to start now I think hold on what are you talking about eyes wide (gasps) shut is a holiday movie of course
0: and look and you're obviously not the first to question that right I mean we're talking about this movie where yes Tom Cruise crashes a sex cult and a lot of people are like oh that's not a Christmas movie to which I say like what is a Christmas movie right like where are we drawing the line because it's got the aesthetics, it's got the themes, you know, eyes wide shut. This is a movie that is set during the holidays. It's not just about a man trying to get it. it it's, a, it's about a man who leaves his home feeling like less of a man while he's out in the world. He's, he's, he, he has these run ins, very close run ins with death. And then he returns home to his family, renewed, ready to heal. And I've used this line before, but basically like eyes wide shut. It's essentially, it's a wonderful life with naked people.
5: I've actually said Eyes Wide Shut is a holiday movie myself, so there I, I have to agree with Rad on this
2: one. Okay, so Eyes wow, Wide Shut. We You're are cult. We are legion. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think by cult and legion, you mean the two of you. But I think <laughs> exactly. I, I, I am am a believer in Die Hard. We were talking about this before mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the, the panel started, Rad. I'm a believer that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. You know, that's Same a good story. one. Man know?
0: wants to get home for the holidays to his family, yes. and he's facing death.
2: Yeah, that's the hallmark of any Christmas movie, is
0: <laughs> yes. grim
2: existential uh, thoughts. Uh, Terry, hold on. Can I just bring you in on this? what What do you make of all this?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think that we ha- we are seeing there's been a lot of criticism, right, about w- – how these have come about and we are seeing kind of a bit of a change. It's been a really slow, but we're starting to see a bit more diversity in the leads. We have some movies that celebrate Hanukkah. There's Menorah in the middle. These are there's the new Hallmark Hall-
2: movies. There's, there's more or not yeah. Hallmark movies, but Hallmark style movies. There's new. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There's,
1: right th- there's um holiday heritage, which celebrates Kwanzaa. Um, but out of those 172 movies that you mentioned off the top, Tom, I, I thought I would dig deep into those because I am an entertainment journalist and um, each one doesn't describe the plot because as Emil quite rightly pointed out, all of the plots are essentially the same, <laughs> but they do say what each movie contains, like the, the, what they use to make those plots work. So I thought I'd make a list of some of my favorites and they, this is what some of the 172 movies contain. Okay. Alpacas. Okay. Supposedly magical cookies. Okay. Literary lies laughs with livestock christmas charity event in jeopardy sibling hijinks this is a very popular one i mean i think it's one of your favorites bakery in jeopardy the bakery oh, lo- no bacon. i love that i love that yeah. oh this is a good one single prince with small town dreams two women named noel <laughs> <yet her> <laughs> daughter and my favorite grandma's beloved pasta sauce. So those are just some of the things that these movies contain. Oh
2: my god! Well, supposedly Magic Cookie sounds like the holiday parties I had when I was twenty three. Um, <laughs> uh, but Amelia, this is what I've been reading about. Uh, what Terry's been saying is that there have been um, there has been an effort to broaden um these these films uh, to make these films uh, either more diverse or to to talk about uh things that deviate outside of the traditional Hallmark, Hallmark Christmas movie that might mean uh, a same sex couple at the at the heart of it as um as Terry pointed out there might be different faiths represent, represented in these holiday movies and from what i understand and what i've been reading and getting ready for this panel Emil, like there there has been some adverse reaction to that right
5: yes definitely i mean you know I can't pretend that these movies are not incredibly straight and incredibly white uh, and and even for all their diversity and and they're bringing more LGBTQ storylines into it you know it's still two white people kissing at the end but uh, despite the fact that it's still a, a very small measure of, of progress that we're seeing people like Candace Cameron Bure are are appalled and you know she's teaming up with the I think it's called the Great American Family Network to put christianity back into christmas and you know they want to make these films much more traditional and and i'm putting air quotes around that because i think what they mean is uh straight white couples uh who believe in jesus and you know they they're they're really uncomfortable with the idea of these films uh appealing to more uh, of a broad audience including lgbtq storylines and and i just think it's so funny because yeah, they're not, they are not. These are not progressive films. This, this is not. You know, we're not groundbreaking here. We're we're simply appealing to the masses. Um, but there are people that that don't like it and, and really want to see us return to. I mean, it's a wonderful life, basically, yeah. not to throw rat under the bus. But I, I,
2: I at the same time that that's happening, so there is this reaction to a more. I mean, as you say, a very subtly more progressive viewpoint in in these films. So you have Candace Cameron Bure, who you might know as – was she DJ on Full House? DJ Mm, on Full House. Yes. And uh, she's been in a lot of these kind of Hallmark Christmas movies. But on the other side of things, you have like actual kind of A-list celebrities getting in in these rads. So you have Kristen Stewart, uh, who you might know from the Twilight films and in the – what was the name of that Princess Diana movie? Happiest
0: Season. Oh, the Princess Diana movie? I thought you were talking about Happiest Season. She was in a Christmas movie like that. Uh, What was that called? uh, Spencer. Oh, Spencer, right, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. So Kristen Stewart, who was in that, uh, she's in this film Happiest Season. Will Ferrell and Vancouver's own Ryan Reynolds are in this new Christmas movie called Spirited. Rad, what do you make of this, of these, like, big-time celebrities now getting into this genre of film, which we can say was once sort of relegated to the former full-house castmates of the world?
0: Again, like, I don't know that that's true. Like, I I don't think this is actually anything new because I feel like for an A-list star to appear in a Christmas movie, like— it's, I feel like that's been going on for a long time. I feel like it's a bit like a top recording artist, like making a Christmas album. Like you got to have at least one, you know? So like, think about it. Arnold had Jingle All the Way. Denzel and Whitney had The Preacher's Wife. Kate Winslet had The Holiday. And there's that whole star studded cast that made the mistake of showing up for Love Actually. Right. And so oh, I'm,
1: wow. <laughs> sorry, like, I'm good
0: But, yeah, like, and I'm willing to bet, though, like, so there's a long history of this, and I'm willing to bet, like a Christmas album, you know, the residuals from some of these movie stars for appearing in these movies are amazing because simps like us feel, like, compelled to pop in these movies every holiday season. So there's this, like... You know, there's this built-in evergreen value when your movie gets SEO hits from the holidays. So I think movie stars, you know, all the way going back to Fred McMurray and, and Barbara where you are like, we got to get in on the Christmas action.
2: I thought you were going to say, like, it's nothing new, Tom. Stanley Kubrick has been directing holiday movies
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> ever since he made Even Eyes Wide Shut. before Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, if there's one Christmas rom-com that was poised to separate itself from the holiday pack this year through sheer star power and promotional muscle alone, it is this one.
3: Sheriff, could you please tell her to let me out of here?
1: First, we need to figure out who you are. What do you mean, who I am? My name is... My name is...
3: So what are we supposed to do with her? I have a place. Does it have room service?
2: That is a bit of the Netflix film Falling Into Christmas, featuring Lindsay Lohan in her first starring role in 10 years. uh, Emile, what did you make of this?
5: Well, you know, I'm... I'm a millennial, and I've grown up with Lindsay Lohan, and I was really rooting for her. I want her to have the comeback that she deserves. She's had a very wavy, rocky few years, Um, and this was really going to be her her big entree back into Hollywood, and unfortunately, it was so Mm. unbelievably bad. It was like... (laughs) shockingly bad really it was really bad even for
2: you who likes the badness of these things i was gonna say
5: even for me who will watch four hallmark christmas movies in a row it was like unwatchable and i just feel so bad for Lindsay lohan what
2: what made it so bad
5: It, it it really like had all the pieces of what would make a good movie but they just were put together wrong and i think that she um she was just done dirty it you know she bonks her head she oh. loses her uh, memory and she's staying in a, a like a B and b with a handsome B&B owner who also happens to be a single dad. Classic. Uh, and they <laughs> fall in love and, you know, everything's fine at the end. But it just you do need a little bit of magic to make it work, Tom. It doesn't just uh, happen. There is no. something that Hallmark adds that makes them really good. and And this felt very empty to me.
2: Terry, what do you make of this?
1: yeah I totally agree. I mean
5: it had here's the problem is
1: she was never likable. She was this rich heiress girl who was a bit of a jerk, and so she bumps her head and the amnesia plot line you know starts up, but she doesn't forget that she's a jerk like she still acts like a jerk, so that's a problem and I think they just bit off more than they can chew. It's set in like um like a ski resort area, and all the skiing looks really bad. The special effects are terrible in it, and there's just I mean, the thing that works about these movies, whether you like them or not, is that they're very earnest and they're very likable. And, you know, this Lindsay Lohan movie, she's just not likable in it. And to Emile's point, she was done dirty. And i it was too bad because I, I, you know... I'm a Gen Xer, and I interviewed Lindsay back in the day for Parent Trap and Freaky Friday, and I was rooting for her, too. And she's going to need a second chance.
2: Um, For someone out there who wants to steer clear of this typical rom-com holiday fair, Rad, other than, you know, Citizen Kane, apparently, and The Life Aquatic (laughs) and The Criterion Collection, um, what other Christmas-themed movies would you recommend?
0: Um you know what I'm going to go and recommend one of my favorites which actually has all the kind of familiar archetypal holiday tropes uh that's Batman returns okay cuz it it really does play like the ultimate christmas movie because if you think about it you got like you have christopher walken's like kind of trump like villain max shrek he's really like the scrooge figure there and you got villains like catwoman and the penguin who are just you know in some ways they're just yearning for companionship and family a holiday theme then penguin ends up being this movie's grinch because his ultimate mission is to steal babies on christmas like the grinch stole christmas and you know it's a movie that just makes the holidays so sexy i mean like that line mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it but a kiss could be deadlier if you mean it like give me those holidays oh i, I think you might have got me on that one i think yes. i like the idea of batman returns <laughs> as a holiday movie all
2: right uh terry next to you what's your what's your go-to holiday movie
1: uh, I'm still the classic with The Grinch. I can watch it over and over. Elf always gets me in my feels. And But I will say if I'm going for one of these classic um, or new classic uh, Hallmark movies, Danica McKellar is quite lovely in Christmas at the Drive-In. And you can play a game of spotting when they repurpose all the famous movie lines.
2: Um, so Christmas at the Drive-In. Christmas at the Drive-In. All right. Emil, the last word mm-hmm. to you. What's your What's your holiday pick?
5: Well, I just want to echo that Dana McKell- Danica McKellar is great in all of the Hallmark movies. Uh, Thank but you very I much love about. I love Home Alone. Oh, uh, we watch that every Christmas. I love The Family Stone. That's a more serious oh. one. Um, and I love The Grinch, but the, the newer Grinch with Benedict Cumberbatch. And my children actually watch that year round. So I could quote you the entire film, but it is <laughs> wonderful and it just makes you feel good, and that's really what we want at Christmas. Well,
2: these are beautiful holiday pics. Thanks for a lot for dropping by, and Emil. Before I let you go, I just want to congratulate you on the really amazing job you've done over the past couple of years on PopChat. Um, as you guys are airing your final final episode, and I'm looking forward to hearing you more on Commotion with Amin now as the as the show goes forward. But con- congratulations on everything.
5: Thanks, Tom. Uh, I really appreciate that. It's been so fun doing the show. Uh,
2: that is our Q Christmas movie panel. My guests were writer Emil Niazzi, Super Channel host Terry Hart, and film critic and resident Grinch, Rad Simon Pulley. <laughs> That is it for the show today. Next time on the show, Rez will be here. Rez is a star in the world of electronic music with millions of streams and shows at Coachella and Lollapalooza. But that massive rise came at a steep cost to her physical and mental health. Rez will talk about building a sustainable life in a profession of grueling tours. We'll see you then, later on.